Okay, here we go. June the 19th, 2011, lecture discussion number 40. Oh, kids, you're dismissed. Sorry about that. You're just, you just wiped out our entire attendance right there by going. Plenty of chairs available here today. June the 19th, lecture discussion number 40 on the book of Romans, uh, more specifically Romans 3, 19 through 26, though I probably will stop at 21 again. Uh, but as you know, this is a very important part of the book of Romans, as is the others that I've mentioned in the past as well. See the other sermons if you folks are listening on the Internet. Okay, today being Father's Day, I and again I should say uh, for everyone listening by remote means that uh, I am not well again today. I'm very uh, sick and I'm just hanging on. I'm sweating a lot and, and I've got a fever clearly, and so don't uh, go anywhere near me. At all, I'll say that again to the group here, and, and so I apologize to those who are listening. We'll just do what we can do. Okay, today being Father's Day, I'm, I'm aware, very well aware, of the expectations that accompany these such days. So naturally, once again, I've prepared a special Father's Day lecture. <laughs> and I have, I have uh, done this many times, and uh, this one, again, is a special Father's Day event, and it's replete with many clever Father's Day references and analogies. And if everything goes as devised, uh, all here in attendance, which isn't very many, will be sufficiently overcome with emotional responses, and will go forth as happy little congregants, leaving behind vast sums of tithes and offerings. And that's the plan, if we could pull it off for today, and all that remains is the execution which would be appropriate if indeed I did the aforementioned plan. And as you know here, that is never the plan at Cliffside Community Chapel. I never plan fuzzy-wuzzy, warm, emotional lectures. I do the exact opposite, don't I? I I have a usual, dreary, mundane, droning on and on and on, please make him stop material that that I plan every week. Why do I plan it that way every week? Well, Pinky, it's uh, the only thing I know how to do. And if you got that joke, then you watch TV way too much. But that is one of the reasons why we have a dearth of visitor. Um, that's one of the reasons. And, and if you come here for the first time, I hope you were properly warned. I won't stare at you, the visitor. But uh, generally, I have five or six or seven visitors that do come, and when they hear what this is, they go, wow, I really don't want to do this. And I get it, and it's not a problem. It's not that I can, uh, I'm offended by it anymore. Uh, it is the decision that I've made many, many years ago, and I'm sticking to it to the bitter end. And that's just how I'll be. Sorry. Yeah, not really sorry about that at all. That's, that's a fake sorry. Anyway, actually, I really do have a Father's Day applicational sermon today. It just isn't, uh, uh, and I actually even have a story, an applicational story. I just don't have any idea how it applies to anything, and I don't think it does apply to anything. But it was such a cool story that I had to, uh, I had to bring it in, and it has kind of a Father's Day theme, and I wanted to do it, and it's clearly a work in progress. And perhaps by the end of the uh, lecture today, I'll figure out how the story uh, becomes germane and relevant to Romans 3:19 through 21 or 26, whichever, how far I get. 
And by the way, when you do that, when you have a story, and I am a trained professional, when you have a story uh, in today's pastor speak that doesn't apply to the sermon, but yet you're going to make it apply to the sermon no matter what you have to do, we call that beat to fit. And it's a contemporary church technique, and it's, and it's the norm nowadays. It really is. It's essentially, uh, it, it entails, as I said, select a story, and then what do you do once you've got your story selected? What do you do? You lie. You absolutely bald-faced lie. Usually you put yourself in the story as if you were really there. And it doesn't matter if you get caught. People don't really catch you. They don't really seem to care anymore. But you add lie after lie in order to spruce up the story and make it apply to your life or to somebody in your church's life. And, and then you declare the, uh, the it's now just all blue smoke and fabricated nonsense to be an example of the uh, passage that we're going to do. And that passage, of course, is normally completely misinterpreted. Why wouldn't you expect that? If he's going to lie about the passage, or I'm sorry, lie about the story, he's certainly going to lie about the scripture, isn't he? Pretty simple. And what do we call all of that? We call that Church 2011. Yeah. That's what we call it. Consult your handy yellow pages for a location near you. Three service times, right? For your convenience. Please make checks payable. Laodicean megalopolis church of the vomited out. See Revelation 3.16. I get asked a lot. I get asked, Mr. Chronister. Okay, they don't call me Mr. We had a really nice lady. Uh, what was her name again, dear? Help me. Uh, Jen- Jennifer from Arizona that addressed me as Mr. Chronister. Uh, I'm, I'm busy trying to find out what we can give her free. We don't have any T-shirts. But anyway, they, no one calls me Mr., but let's pretend. I get asked this a lot, quotes, if you will. Mr. Chronister, do you really think that the megachurch concept uh, today is totally corrupt? And my answer is uh, not yet. Let's wait a few few days. It isn't, it isn't far away. Uh, see the parable of the mutated monstrosity mustard tree filled with evil agents. That's a, a Matthew 13, 31 through 32. I've said many, many times, a mustard bush does not grow into a tree. So when you see one in Scripture, it, God did not make a mistake. He specifically said, I had a monstrosity, a mustard bush that became a tree, and it was filled with black evil birds that he described as evil in the sower parable right before that. That's the context of the mustard tree parable. Anyway, I have an actually true, really happened Father's Day story. I really do. I have one. That might be the first one ever. I think it is the first one ever. I have changed the names to protect the innocent. I really haven't done that either. I have Um and I've embellished a few details for comedic effect, uh, so you can hold me accountable for that. But no one will catch me. There's, it's it's hardly hardly anyone on the internet will know about this. The thousands that are listening, and there are thousands that will or won't listen. My here just to scare you. My number one sermon. Hi Kurt Falk. We're saying hi to Kurt Falk on Podbean, who runs Podbean. My highest sermon on Podbean is now that many people listening to one sermon. I think this one will break that record. It'll be extraordinary. Okay? So I haven't changed the uh, 
names because that's the best part. And, and there's nobody that's innocent anyway, right? That it's just a biblical certainty. Uh, no, not one. And this, this is a literally true event, and it's used by me for the purposes of killing time on a Sunday evening. And not really, but maybe. As you know, I'm currently doing um, some framing out in Eagle River. It's a small project. It's only 5,000 square feet or better. Um, and, and we're doing it for fun, and that's the truth. I told Mike that the other day. That's the truth. We're having a great time out there. We, we love the people we're with, and we're really enjoying ourselves a lot, and we're attempting to do something that we think will last a great deal of time uh, if we have that much time. And, and we're having fun when we're not falling off of things or shooting ourselves with butane nail guns. But, and, and our mostly little old crew, and mostly little old, but it's, it's an older crew of misbegotten misfits and street urchins. And, um, and, 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 uh, on that crew is, uh, the following people. Jane, who's not here, and Lori, who is here, and Bill, who is not here, and me, who is here. And then um, and every now and then Eric comes out and helps, and every now and then Louis comes out and helps. And um, But then there is uh, uh, Lorenzo Robert Lopez and Michael, no middle name, Tavalero. And those are important details. Those are critically important details you'll see here in a minute as we go along. Lorenzo, and I got that right, right, Robert? Lorenzo Robert Lopez is the father of Lorenzo Arturo Lopez, right? Okay, got that right. And together they form, they comprise the famous Flying Lorenzos of renown. They help us, and you can imagine what their task is on this framing job, since Bill and I try to remain firmly on the ground at all times. Though, if Bonnie were here, she'd be really upset, because Bill was up on the roof roofing the other day, wasn't he? And that's... Uh, that's uh, 35, 40 feet in the way, in the hair. Anyway, so I have Lorenzo Robert. I gotta go back and read it. Did I get that right? Lorenzo Robert Lopez, yes. And I have Lorenzo Arturo Lopez, famous flying Lorenzos of renown. Then I have, then we have Michael, no middle name, Tavalero. And he is the father of Michael Adrian Xavier Tavalero. And together they comprise Michael, no middle name, Tavalero, and Max. Michael, I have to put this on the board for you, Adrian Xavier, and therefore he is now forever Max. What does this have to do with Romans 3, you're asking, I know. Hang with me. I'm going to beat it to fit. And clearly, we have Michael, no middle name, Tavalero, and we have Michael Adrian Xavier Tavalero, and so there's some kind of compensatory middle name syndrome occurring here, in that Max got both middle names and Mike got none, and, and I'm sure that's a source of great angst in their family. But, okay, so, so far is everybody on board. I have Robert, sorry, I don't, Lorenzo Robert Lopez, and I have Lorenzo Arturo Lopez, and I have Michael, no middle name, Tavalero, and Michael Adrian Xavier Tavalero. Is that, is everybody still on board with me now? I have to go over it again. I know it's complicated. But you gotta have that because it's the foundation of the story. Now, sometime last week, and I'm being deliberately ambiguous as to protect one of them. Okay? 
as to the exact time, because one is guilty. Lorenzo Arturo uh, Lopez and Michael Adrian Xavier Tavalero, they decide to go exploring into the wilderness. The uh, uh, And for those of you who listen by Internet, you will like this. They're going into the Alaskan wilderness. Granted, it's close by where they live, but where they live is not someplace any of you who are listening to me would choose to live if you could avoid it. It's very, very much part of the Alaskan experience. In the sense, it's quite close. Grizzly bears come through their property on a regular basis. Their dog goes down and rolls in horse manure every day. A lot of you wouldn't like that. They don't particularly like that either, but the dog likes it, and he's pretty proud of it, and we all respect him for what he's doing. <laughs> but anyway, uh, little Lorenzo and Max, they decide to go exploring into the adjacent Alaskan wilderness. And both are very experienced. Both have done this many times. And neither, however, uh, neither, however, this time divulged their exact intent. Just a generic, we're going hiking by. And when I mean by, I mean by. We're going hiking by. And the hike begins, what, about 9 o'clock p.m., is that correct? About 8. Oh, well, I'll give you a break then. At 8 o'clock p.m. And unbeknownst to anyone besides themselves, they resolved to investigate some hidden lake 26 miles into steep, steep terrain into bear habitat. That's their plan. They, what's that? My microphone not on? Oh, it went off? Okay. Okay, there it's back. Let me repeat that then. They... No one knows, and sorry again for my voice, I can feel it going. I might not get through the story. Uh, no one knows. They just decide we're going to go 26 miles. Is that right? Did I get that part right? Go ahead. Make yourself more guilty. Okay. Let's just go with 26 miles and 13 miles out. Okay. I'm sorry. The math is still 26 miles. They decide what we're going to do is 26 miles, 8 p.m. at night. We're not going to tell anybody. We're going to go into steep terrain. We're going to go into bear habitat. What could possibly go wrong? In the dark, right? Even though there's not much darkness. No cell phone reception, no equipment, no planning, no map, no compass. Just two guys headed off into the dense forest at night to find some lake. It seems like a great idea to me. (laughs) And perhaps you can now begin to see the spherical applicational lesson about to present itself. I hope you can. At about 2, 2 a.m., and maybe before that, but about 2 a.m., the two fathers. Aha! Father's Day story, right? The two fathers begin to be concerned. Why? The sons are overdue to their thinking. And, of course, they have no knowledge of the scope of the reconnaissance that's going on. 26 miles of reconnaissance. They don't know about the mysterious lake objective. And the fathers consider mobilizing after failing to reach the wayward sons by phone. But they don't. They wait. Finally, at about what? 4.30 in the morning? 4.35 o'clock in the morning, the fathers begin the search and rescue. Or perhaps it's also a possible search and destroy effort. It could go. It go either way based on how things are going to, whichever becomes appropriate, obviously. And very quickly, uh, they go off and they locate, being the expert trackers that they are, they find what we call Lorenzo's vehicle, uh, which is being very kind to it. 
He spends every day trying to put another hole in it. Anyway, doesn't miss a day. The police are also called, and they're present. And, and having been informed that two missing, overdue, unprepared hikers, Alaska, and the fathers and the police then have the following procedural investigative exchange. Five o'clock in the morning. What was it? Forty degrees? Was it raining? Cold, cold and damp for sure. Yeah. Yeah, the chances of hypothermia probably what? hundred percent. Especially if you went in the lake. The mysterious hidden lake that no one even knew you were going for. You didn't bother to tell them. Why bother? It's only 26 miles. No one's a worry. Did you have any food? Oh, good. What did you have? I can't wait. Oh, you had sandwiches. The bears would enjoy those. You call that a call that a condiment is what the sandwich would become. Wouldn't it? Sprinkle the sandwich on you. Did you have any firearms? I've got to know this. Here you you can't. You no, know, you didn't, did you? Don't. How careful, careful. You be quiet. Did Lorenzo have any firearms? Oh, you don't have a, you don't have anything. Lorenzo is carrying a, a what? A 357? Oh, wow. <laughs> you can't even say 357 in bear ter- territory with a straight face, can you? What would have happened? Lorenzo would have climbed a tree and shot, shot the bear from a distance. How many bears are up there? Oh, just two. Just two. Grizzlies or black bears? Oh, just, just a female with cubs. What could possibly go wrong? But you had a sandwich. You could throw the sandwich at her. Maybe the, hey, that's thinking. Okay, anyway. We have this investigative procedure exchange at five o'clock in the morning, 40 degrees damp. And I want you to imagine that you are the police officer. Put yourself in his position. And so I'm going to try to act it out for you. I'm not a very good actor, but I'm going to do my best. The officer says, what is your name, sir? Lorenzo Ropez. And so the officer writes it down. I can imagine. L-O-R-E-Z-E-N-Z-O-L-O-P-E-Z. And who are you looking for? Lorenzo Lopez. L-O-R-E-N-Z-O. And he would pause, wouldn't he? And he would ask the obvious question. Are you looking for yourself? No, I'm looking for Lorenzo Lopez. Lorenzo Lopez Jr.? No. <laughs> now, now he would turn to the, uh, he'd, sir, he'd say, and what is your name, sir? Michael Tavalero. Who are you looking for, sir? Michael Tavalero. Junior? No. <laughs> so, to sum up the situation, we have two Adult males in the woods who have called the police in the hopes of finding themselves. That's that's what he would think, wouldn't he? Absolutely certain of it. And all of that, however, was prevented the inevitable perfunctory detention and subsequent free ride to Anchorage at taxpayers' expense. Uh, that was prevented by the emergence of Max and little Lorenzo from the woods, causing the police and the fathers to burst into songs of joy. And I'm not really sure about that last part. But I bring all of this up because, one, it's Father's Day, and because of the dual concepts of fatherhood and law. I have fatherhood and law right here. I have two fathers, and I have the law. Now, I'm beating that to fit, but that's the best I could do. 
Anyway, fatherhood and law are woven into the fabric of Scripture. Yes, give me credit. There's only ten of you. I, I Thank you for laughing. You should laugh louder, Terry. They'll think there's more of us. Anyway, fatherhood and law are woven into the fabric of Scripture. The Bible establishes God as Father and is the source of all law. All law is given by God the Father. That is where we are now in our lecture series with regard to Romans. And I'll bring this all together, I hope. We have something, if you've read in your books, chapter 9, you saw this, didn't you? Patria potestas. Okay, that means paternal power, or the power that comes from a father. If you wish to, fatherhood and law. And they all understand that that began, this is where the origin of societal law came from. It came from patria potestas. Jurisprudence, the theory and philosophy of law, has they believe originates from this very small beginning, a father in authority. Hopefully everyone recognizes the term patria potestas, and you know that it is from your homework assignment, chapter 9. I'm saying that for those who follow along on the Internet. Uh, who made God from Professor Edgar Andrews? And hopefully as well, everyone remembers from last Sunday the two main emphasized points that I made. And what were those points? I made two points. Do you remember? Two critical points. What were they? I said, one, that light, in fact, I said all of matter had what? It had a dual nature. Light, light has a dual nature for sure. And De Broly decided that all of matter, all of electrons have a dual nature. Light has a wave-particle duality, and that all of matter has duality. That observation uh, <coughs> is very important because involved in it is an observer effect. Remember the observer effect. What determines the dual nature, or what determines whether or not it remains a dual nature, is the observer effect. The observer observes. So all of matter, that's my major point last week, all of matter has a dual nature. And of course, that means who? That means you, me, your matter. You matter. Huh. Thank you. Thank you from the back row. We're matter. All of matter has a dual nature, but specifically light. And that's the purpose of the Thomas Young effect. I'm sorry, the Thomas Young double slit experiment. But we have an observer. And that observer affects the nature of matter. That is basic quantum mechanics theory. Okay? Observer affects the twofold nature of all matter. And, and when you recognize that that's occurring, quantum physics is saying without any stuttering, they are absolutely certain, as certain as they can be, that light has a dual nature, that it has a wave-particle duality, and they believe that all matter has this same duality. They are positive of it. They are positive that observation affects that nature. And when you understand that, you are left with a conclusion that is, uh, that is obvious. And that conclusion is that atheistic evolutionary dogma cannot, cannot be the origin of that. It is impossible for dual, 
a duality in nature or a dual, a twofold nature. It is impossible for a twofold nature to evolve. And it is impossible for a twofold nature that evo- that, that exists that once it's observed, it goes back and forth between particle and light. I'm sorry, particle and um, wave. That cannot, I hope it's obvious to you, evolution cannot be the origin of that system. And this is what's called the theological implications of subatomic behavior or quantum motion or quantum mechanics. The theological implications are the metaphysical implications. Let me say it another way. The spiritual implications of quantum motion. And the other point I made was what? I did it really quick. That's where we are today. What was the other point that I made? You remember? I said that all law is one law. That's how I started. So think of a law. Thou shalt not go out of your house at 8 p.m. into the woods towards a hidden lake with a sandwich as a weapon. (laughs) How many sermons can I get out of that story? I, I think... 30, I got 105 just out of Genesis. Genesis out of Genesis 1 through 19. I can certainly do 30 stories out of a bear cub and a sandwich. Okay. All law is one law. So think of a law. Moral law. What's right and what's wrong. That's law. It is the same as societal law. What governs society governs you morally. All of that is also the same as natural law. All of that is the same as scientific law in the sense that all of it is one law. I only have one law. That was my point. All law is inside of, if you will, all law is a segment of one law. Moral law, societal law, scientific law, natural law is all the same law. Now, what's the obvious question? I've got one law. Is it from one source? And irrespective of whatever view one may eventually arrive at, once again, atheistic evolutionary philosophy cannot be the origin of law. That was my other point. And again, now this is the theological implications or the spiritual implications or the metaphysical implications of the ubiquity of law. Because law is ubiquitous. What I mean by that is law is universal. Law is everywhere throughout creation. As far away in the universe as you can get, you will find law, the same law that you find here. What governs the universe governs the earth. We have one law, and all law is the same, if you will, because we only have one law. Now, let's reread two passages in Romans. Romans 1. We do this a lot. This is called... Uh, I have a quote here. Let me read it to you really fast. The first principle of teaching is what? Repetition. The second principle of teaching is what? Repetition. And the third principle of teaching, you can do this, is repetition. And you're going to notice that that's what we're doing because that is what works. Sorry. Not really. 
I used to have my math students, Mr. Chronister, because they had to call me Mr. or what happened. I beat them, that's right. Could I be a teacher today? Not if I had an attorney's kid in my class. And I did have one attorney's kid in my class, and I dropped him on his head. That's not as bad as what Larry Whitmore did to an attorney's kid. He, he did much worse. He drug him downstairs after he slammed him into a locker. Is there a chance that uh, we can still be sued? Yeah. So that's as far as I'll go with it. I was, I was a very popular teacher, and everyone called me Mr. Okay, except for the other staff members. Here we are, Romans 1.18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clean, clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, I've read that many times. That's the without excuse uh, uh, verse in the book of Romans. Very important. But notice how it begins. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Thus the obvious questions, right? What is the exact definition, what is God's definition of the wrath of God? Do not anthropomorphize. Do not put yourself in thinking that your wrath is the same as His wrath. It's not. So what is the wrath of God? What is it? Define it for me. Some said judgment. (coughs) I don't disagree. But what's the purpose of judgment? Why does He bring wrath? Because... You could take the converse, right? What if he didn't bring wrath? So what's the purpose of the wrath? It's to stop something or to end something, isn't it? What's it to stop? What's it to end? He's going to stop sin. He's going to stop evil. He's going to stop wickedness, isn't he? He's going to put an end to it. And now we we need to know what the method of his wrath is. What is the method of his wrath? How does he end sin? How many methods does he have to end sin? He incends for who, how many, what kinds of groups of people? Do I have, do I have only one group of people? Okay, let's ask a better thing. How many of you are going to heaven? Everybody raise your hand. If you don't, what will happen? I will come and beat you. Right now, I have time. Okay, you're all going to heaven. I can still do it. I'm only, well, I'm only 40 something. Okay. I have, I have, People who are, who are what? Saved? And I have people who are unsaved. Would we agree with that? Two groups of people. How many proportionally are in this group? The saved group. Not very many. How many in this group? Massive amounts of unsaved people. Overwhelming. It is, it is called uh, in Isaiah a fish gorging itself to where it's so fat. People running off the cliff throwing themselves into hell, uh, into the lake of fire ultimately. But notice, the wrath of God does two things, doesn't it? It, it, it comes upon the, the unsaved for certain. What about the saved? 
What happens to the saved? How come the wrath of God does not condemn them? So he has two methods, essentially. He has two groups of people. He has two methods, or if you will, he has two things that he does. One for the saved, one for the unsaved. Where does the wrath of God go if it does not go on the saved? Because I have Yom Kippur to explain where it goes. Where does it go? It goes on the goat. The goat for Yahweh, right? Also the goat for Azazel. What happens to the goat? The goat has to die, right? In pipe there. So the wrath of God goes on himself. That's one way that the wrath of God, one direction of it. The other direction is the wrath of God goes on the unsaved, or those who choose not to uh, take the blood of Christ, who don't want to be in the cup. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So we've got to know God's definition of wrath. How does he reveal his wrath from heaven? And notice also, again, his invisibility is clearly seen. Okay? In his made creation, it says so, in, his ma- in the things that are made, in his made creation, his invisibility is clearly seen. What's the obvious question now? He says that's the case. Who's he talking to? Book of Romans, who are they? They're Christians. He's saying, he is saying that his invisibility is clearly seen and his wrath is revealed from heaven. Okay, how many of you see his invisibility? How many of you uh, understand? Let's read it again. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Okay, you can see the things that are made, and you understand that those are the attributes of God. How many people do that today? How many Christians do that today? Okay, now, he also makes known his omnipotence, his power, and he says that his power is eternal. Is that a good thing? It is a good thing. We need His power to be eternal. How come? We're the things that are made. Not only am I looking at His attributes in in physical items, trees, and whatever you wish, uh, pool table and plants, but I also see it in me. His invisible attributes are seen in me. He ex- He shows us His power that's eternal. That means that there's eternity for me. And then His triune Godhead. And there is no excuse. You should be able to see God in the things that are made. You cannot say, I don't see God. I cannot. I don't recognize Him. Why doesn't He make Himself visible to me? His response to you is right here. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. They're what? Obvious. So they need to be what to you? Obvious to you. Are they obvious to you? They should be obvious. All you have to do is study this. The wave-particle duality of light. And then it is obvious that that is one of the attributes of God. 
And then you also know that you are also like made and that you have a duality. And that's very good news, by the way, in spite of those who say otherwise. Now back to Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. We talked about that earlier. That's the Jews. The Jews were under the law. That every mouth may be stopped. What's the obvious question? What are the mouths saying? And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And whatever the law says, so see that? For whatever the law says, the law says something. The law says many things, but it says something specifically. Uh, something, a lot of somethings actually, but some that are really important to us. And also notice that for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So law teaches of sin or of corruption, of death. Did you notice how I got there? If it teaches of sin, what is it teaching you about, the law? What is law, which is universal, teaching you about? It's got to teach you about death because sin equals death. I cannot separate sin from death. So the Bible is telling you that if you understand law, you will understand death. And certainly failure to keep the law is one aspect of how the law teaches the knowledge of death to somebody. Mankind discovers truth um, primarily through one process, and what's that? How do you learn things besides repetition? It is actually the same thing. There is no better teacher than failure. Mankind discovers truth through failure and repeating failure and then failing in that failure and repeating the failing of the failure. That's how we learn. And if we try to keep the law, what do we do constantly? There's a a lot of laws to keep, by the way. How are you doing? You're doing awful. You haven't kept a single law since you've been here. Today is law-keeping day. I so announced it. And you're all to keep at least one law all day. And none of you have done it. I know that. How do I know that? Because all human beings are hopelessly unable to keep law. No one does it. And if they tell you they're doing it, what, what did they just do to you? They lied to you, which makes them very qualified to be a pastor telling stories. Mankind discovers truth through failure. That's why he gave the law, and that's one of the aspects of it. That's how he teaches you that you cannot keep the law, and therefore you are in sin, and you have death. But it also, there's more to it than that. It's more complex than that. The first principle, as I said, is this repetition of failure. Okay, as is the second and the third principle. The Jews, the Pharisees, more specifically, they would continuously do something. They would declare themselves to be what? What would the Pharisees do every day, all day, and it happens again today? They would declare themselves to be keepers of the law when it's obvious they're not keepers of the law. Not one of them. What would possibly make somebody do that? What's the motive of somebody to say, I am a keeper of the law. I am keeping the law. I am sinless for this month. I've committed no sins for a couple of years now. What could possibly make somebody lie like that? They know it's a lie. I know it's a lie. We all know they're lying. What makes them do it? Who are they fooling with that? 
The Pharisees would continuously declare themselves to be keepers of the law. And when you say that you are the keeper of the law, what are you declaring yourself to be? Good. You're good. I'm good. You're not sorry about you. Not really. Not really sorry about that either. If you declare yourself good, what does the Bible declare you to be? Desperately wicked. You are declaring yourself to be the opposite of, of Scripture and the opposite of reality for that matter. The purpose of the law then is to bring complete failure to mankind over and over and over again. And also to bring the knowledge of death. Okay? Got that? Now, <clears throat> in your homework assignment, Paul in Romans 2.14 through 15 uh, Edgar Andrews quotes that in chapter 9. He declares that all of humanity has an inner sense, Paul does, of the Holy Spirit through Paul does. All of humanity has an inner sense of the moral law, Romans 2:14 and 15, written into us. And God has done this uh, to all of mankind. And this, again, is patria uh, potestas, or paternal power, again, from a biblical perspective. All God has written inside of all of us this moral law. It is in us. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. You know what's right and you know what's wrong. You know. Now, you may refuse to listen to it. You may not care about it. That's none of my business. No offense. My business is to tell you that it's in you. And my, my business is to tell you how it got in you. And that means my business is to tell you Romans 2.14. God wrote it. He put it in you. That's what the Bible says. That is the Bible position. Now, there's another position. What's the other position? Darwinian evolution. It says otherwise. They all agree, everybody agrees that we have patria potestas, or paternal power. And that paternal power is the origin of jurisprudence. But they say paternal power, or patria potestas, is evolutionary. Its origin is evolutionary. And they say this, I have a stable society, and it survived. And it survived because of a strong family unit. And therefore, it began to become dominant. What happened to the weak family units that did not have patria potestas? They died off. So natural selection, they would say. The weak families die off, weak society die, therefore only those units, those families, those societies that had this element, the, uh, this natural selection determinant, only those that had patria potestas, uh, they, they, they exist today, and that is uh, the evidence of an evolutionary uh, uh, process. But we have a problem with that. You read your homework, right? I hope you recognize that what I'm doing is coming out of chapter 9. Evolution is based on something. What is the cornerstone of evolution? What is required by evolution? It's got to be there. They say it's there. They want it, all of us to believe it's there. And they keep repeating that it is there regardless of the lack of evidence that it's there. And that there's no such thing as what they say. By just definition, it doesn't exist. They say that we must have Beneficial mutation. There's no such thing as beneficial mutation. All mutation ultimately is 
degenerative. It loses information, doesn't gain it. That's another story soon. In other words, law or fatherhood power, fatherhood power, which is the, um, or patria potestas, which is the origin of law, that fatherhood power must be a what? Evolutionary thinking-wise. What must it be? It's got to be a mutation. We didn't have it at first, but it mutated. And we got it. And that became a stronger system, and the weak systems all died out. So they have to say, ultimately, that fatherhood power must be a mutation and an advantageous mutation that became dominant. Now, let me ask you. Does that make any sense to you? Where's the flaw? What are we talking about again? The origin of law. Where did law come from? That's very important to you. Parent power is always present. See how this fits in the story? Just asking. It's always present. How do I know that? Because how are children born? What shape are they in? There's one now. How much power does that child have? Not counting three o'clock in the morning. Parent power is always present because human offspring are biologically dependent. They're helpless. So there can't be anything else but patria potestas. It cannot possibly evolve. It's got to be there from the very beginning. It can't help but be there because the children are helpless. It has to always exist. And that, by the way, is a serious problem for the evolutionary thinker. It needs to be solved because all of law, all of rules, all of jurisprudence, which is the philosophy of law, all of that has its origin in this father power. All of it. That's not simply me saying that. That's the Bible saying that. And that's the scientific consensus. That's the philosophical consensus. Law began when a father parent exercised power and authority over his offspring and his wife. And that is without dispute by anyone. So that's the obvious question. What's the obvious question now? When did that happen? When did the first federal head of humanity exercise the first authority? That specific first authority. Let me simplify that a bit. When did the first human being announce the first law? And then the most obvious of the obvious questions. What was the first law? And then even more so, where did that first law come from? Did he originate it himself? The principle of patria potestas requires that a father be the origin of all law. That's very important. Understanding the ubiquity of law and patria potestas does something. What does it do? It renders it impossible for evolutionary thinking to be true. Impossible. Now, I want to read, if I can find it, I want to read uh, something that Mr. 
Andrew says, well, we've got a few minutes. Uh, he's on page 134. So open your textbooks to 134. He asked this, now, law and the lawgiver. So let's return to the questions posed at the beginning of this chapter. Why is law so ubiquitous throughout the cosmos? Why do laws originate? Who makes the rules? Why should we care anyway? Why should you care? I'm trying to prove something to you. What is it I'm trying to prove? You have a twofold nature, that you are dualistic, that you have a soul. And that soul will will exist forever because God has what? Eternal power. There's no possibility that eternal power will cease. Okay, now back to the textbook. Working from the hypothesis of God, I have argued that all law, whether expressed in nature, society, or in the human conscience, derives from a single divine lawgiver. That is why law is so remarkably ubiquitous in human experience. He's saying, on this earth, law is universal. I'm going to go to the next step. What am I going to do? On this earth, in every human society, even in the animals, even in the ants, he'll tell you, even in uh, fish, we have laws, we have rules, we have a system. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's universal on this earth. Every game, every event, everything. We have four dogs in our house. They go by rules. Rule number one, the Sierra is in charge. The German Shepherd. Although that's getting a little touchy. Rule number two, Abigail is second. Rule number three, Lucy is making a move. Rule number four, Sierra doesn't like it. Rule number five, Riley sleeps all day long. But there's rules and they function as a, as a group. And they follow the rules. Where did the rules come from? Why do I have rules? What am I going to say? Law is everywhere on this earth. If you want to have an evolutionary position and you want to say that law evolved on the earth, even though there is no such thing as beneficial mutation with respect to law, and there's no such thing as an origin of law that does not have patria potestas and requires a father to give it to you, no such thing. You have to say there's no morality inside me. You have to say that all of the all of the complexity with law in this earth is somehow accidental or chaotic or random. But then you got another problem. What's that? The law is throughout the cosmos. So let's keep reading. We have yet to look in details at the law of nature, of course, and this we shall do in the next chapter. That's your homework assignment, right? Next chapter. But so far the evidence strongly supports the sentiments of Edmund Burke. Let's go back to Edmund Burke, who said at the very beginning in 1788, there is but one law for all, namely the law which governs all law. The law of our Creator, the law of humanity, justice, equity, the law of nature and of nations. Edmund Burke, 1788. That all law is a unity because it is derived from God. There is but one law for all, namely the law which governs all law, the law of our Creator, the law of humanity, justice, equity, the law of nature and nations. He's quoting Burke there again. It, it, it should be done every day, frankly. May we not conclude then that the principle of law, 
permeates the cosmos. Because it does. Because it has a single source in the transcendent lawgiver by whom all things were made. Or is there, after all, some naturalistic explanation? So he is going to go on to tell you that next chapter, we must do some hard thinking about cosmic law in its most fundamental manifestation, the laws that describe and control the physical universe. Then he makes this very strong statement. These, at least, can have no Darwinian explanation. Why? He tells you there, if you want to say that law on the earth is naturalistic, that it evolved, One, it's indefensible, but I'll give it to you. Now you have a bigger problem. Prior to the law that's on the earth, what did I have? Evolutionary uniformitarianism thinking, which means that we're how many gigazillion years old? Okay, they say say we're 15 billion. But prior, how old is the earth? What do they say? You should study the enemy. Not the enemy. Okay. You should study those who disagree with me. They say it's about 4.6 billion years old, right? How old did they say the universe is? 15 billion. Okay? I got law here. What do I got out here? I got law out there. How do I explain that if I'm an evolutionary thinker? How did it, how did this law evolve? Because I have law at the very microscopic level that is dualistic. I have law that, that is everywhere. And that's what he says to you. Now, the last thing, I know I'm out of time, but I wanted you, did you, anybody ever, did you read the turtles? You have to read the turtles. Um, the turtles all the way up. Does anybody know where it is? I'm assigning you the turtles all the way up. Somebody yell out that has seen it or that have read it. I, it's not. Uh, it's not in the uh, in the uh, um, contents. Well, that's your job now. Go find the turtles all the way up and read that. That's very important to you. And next week we'll finish. What's that? He does, but it's somewhere earlier. Um, and I don't know how many of you are starting to read from the beginning, and that's coming as well. Uh, that's where he begins to talk about uh, things that we have to know is with regard to quantum mechanics. Uh, but I wish I could find it really quickly, but I can't. Uh, those of you who are listening by Internet, this happens all the time here. Anyway, uh, next week we'll find that and we'll continue.